Sylvia and me. Sylvia and Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Sylvia and me. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hello, my name is Ariana Neumann, and I've just written a book called When Time Stopped. And welcome to Sylvia and Me. Ariana, thank you so much for taking the time in these absolutely unbelievable times to tell this story. And it's, I've heard you say that it's a story of courage, love, and humanity. And it's a story of your father's unbelievable survival and, and the story that you never really knew about your father and your father's family. So what I'd like to do is kind of go back to, I know you, were, you grew up in, uh, in Venezuela, in Caracas, and mm-hmm. as a young girl, you were very much into reading the same books that I started reading, which was the Nancy Drew mystery uh, books. I loved them. And you actually started a mysterious book club, if I'm not mistaken. So can you go back to that time? I guess you were about eight years old or so. And uh, how was life then? So I, I grew up in Venezuela, in the Venezuela of the 70s and 80s, which was a place filled with potential. And it was a really beautiful um, place. It was colorful and vibrant and things were being built and problems seemed to be being solved and I was the daughter of one of the country's most successful industrialists and he was really a bit of a renaissance man so he wasn't just an industrialist he was a philanthropist he was involved in newspapers and education um you name it he 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 was involved in in everything basically and I really liked for nothing except the key to that would, I guess, unlock my father's secrets. And I, I didn't quite realize it at the time, because I think when you're growing up, you just figure that what you have is, well, it, it, you know, it, you, you don't ask too many questions. Um, but I was really fascinated by, by mysteries. And I guess it all started because I read all these books and Nancy Drew mysteries and Enid Blyton. And there was this kid called Encyclopedia Brown that just amassed information and went around solving mysteries. And I wanted to be just, just like Nancy Drew and, and, and the kids in Enid Blyton. And, um, so I set up, I, I grew up as an only child. My mother was working and was very glamorous and my father was very busy all the time. And I had a lot of time in my hands. So I um, started this mysterious boot club. Um, on Saturdays, we would meet and we would spy on people that worked in this beautiful house in the center of Caracas. Um, and we would spend hours just, you know, gazing at people and trying to figure out what mysterious activities they may be involved in. And one of those days, a cousin, my cousin Rodrigo, spied on my father. And he reported that my father had moved a box and that he had moved this box. So my father was a collector of things. And he, one of the things that he collected and that he really loved were watches. And he had 297 pocket watches. That's a lot of watches. (laughs) A lot of watches. (laughs) And okay. He just, I love them. And he made sure they were always working. So he would spend, whenever he wasn't doing something interesting or working or, you know, trying to solve some problem, he was, you know, in this room, in this dark windowless room, repairing his watches, making sure they would work. 
and he had moved a box from that room to which only he had keys. So it was already a mysterious room. Um, and he had moved the box in a way that caught my cousin's attention. And my cousin reported that there must be treasure in that box or something really valuable. And as a young girl, you needed to find out? Well, of course, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there was a mystery there. There was a mysterious box. Maybe this was it. Maybe this was the mystery I had been waiting for. And I waited for everyone to leave, maybe because maybe, maybe it wasn't the mystery I was waiting for, and, and probably because it involved my father. And I think we're all a little protective of our parents. Yes. Um, so I then went to this bookshelf where my cousin had said the box was placed, and I found the box. And it was really light. So I immediately knew there would be no treasure inside. And I was really disappointed. I opened it because you never know. And there they were. There were all these papers. And okay, so I leafed through them and they, most of them were in a different language. They all seemed a little old and not very interesting. And then underneath a couple of them, there was a, there was a pink card. It was a cardboard card um, with, with a photograph it was of my father. And I recognized him as my father immediately, even though clearly this was a much younger version of my father. Um, so it was dated 1943. And I found this again in around 19, probably 1979, 1980. Okay. Um, and, but I had no doubt that the man in the photograph was my dad. He had these remarkably piercing eyes and it was definitely his eyes. But it made no sense because all I knew as I was growing up in Venezuela was that my father had been born in Prague and had left Prague with his brother in 1949. And, you know, his life before that was never discussed. His family was never discussed. I didn't know what he had left behind, but I knew that he was from Prague. And this card said Berlin, 1943. So that didn't make any sense. And then the part where it said date of birth was just a little wrong. My father was born <laughs> in the February 1921. And this one said the 11th of March, 1921. But what was really wrong was the part where it said name. So my father's name was Hans Neumann. And this card said something completely different, said Jan Sebesta. And that just terrified me. It, what, did, what did you do with this information? Did you confront your parents? No, well, my, you know, my father, I guess, was a little scary, so I didn't go to him. My mother was much more approachable and very open, and I just ran to her. And I said, listen, this guy we're living with, he's an imposter. He is not who he is. And I guess now, in retrospect, as I, I have my own kids, and I, I realize that that was quite an unusual thing to say. But my father was quite distant, and I guess I always knew there was something that he wasn't telling me. Um, so when I first found this name, I thought, aha, that's, that's the mystery. He's an imposter. He's not really who he says he is. And my mother, you know, I, I guess tried to just calm me down and said, no, 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 of course he's not an imposter. His name is Hans Neumann. He just had a difficult war and he had, he had to pretend he was someone else for a little bit, but you cannot ask him any questions because he gets very upset. So it's better to leave it where it is. And I guess that's how I grew up, you know, with everyone around me saying the past, you, you must leave it in the past because what we need to focus on is the present and what we have now and possibly the future. But you well, certainly don't focus on the past. Well, yeah, I remember your father always said, 
life is now and in the present. He did. He was very much, you know, he, he, was, he was very engaged in the present and he had a very interesting life. And I guess he made his present very, very full, partly because he didn't want to think about the past. And my mother actually, who didn't have a traumatic past like my father had, um, was also very focused and, and still today she's, she's around still and she's still very focused on, in, on the present. So it was, I had these parents who were very, very much focused on, you know, they didn't sit around and reminisce about how life used to be better um, like many people do. They just, they really were very engaged and very focused on, you know, this is, this is what it's all about. And even when I started my research, uh, you know, decades ago, I remember my mother saying, why, why are you going back to a terrible time when you have such a wonderful present? You have a lovely family and a lovely husband and a wonderful life. Why do you want to go and mess around in the past? Well, and going back a little, um, I read that uh, you actually went back to Prague with your father, I believe it was 1990. How did that come about? Your father never talked about, um, you know, his his childhood or the past. Uh, so why did he go back and um, you accompanied him? So it was um, 1990, you're absolutely right. And in 1989, the Velvet Revolution happened. So the Berlin Wall had crumbled and communism started obviously to, uh, to, to crack and, and to, um, and um, all over Europe, there was this renaissance, I guess. And my, and, and the borders opened and the Czechoslovakian government um, started a program where they invited people that um, had, sorry, I, there's dogs barking in the back. I don't know if you can hear them. That's life. <laughs> That's life, exactly. So the Czechoslovakian government invited people who had left Czechoslovakia but who had become successful to come back to the country. And my father, because he was very successful at that, still then, um, got invited back. And he told me about it. So my parents had divorced, and I guess I, um, I, was, I was the only one that he would share these, this news with. He said, can you believe it? They've invited me back. And I said, wow, great. When are we going? And I was at, I was at university in Boston at the time, and I was always up for an adventure. And he said, what do you mean, when are we going? We're not going. Why on earth would I go back? And I said, well, it'd be lovely to go, and I'll go with you. Come on, let's go. And I figured this would be the moment where he would maybe open up a little bit about his past and you know, share moments about his childhood, I figured if we went back to Prague, these memories that he had obviously suppressed would come back and he would share them with me. So I convinced him it was, I think we went in, I can't remember anymore if it was May or June 1990. um, And we went and spent a few days there. And it was quite incredible because it was, I mean, the, the city is absolutely beautiful. So it was wonderful to go to the city and, 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 and see it. And it was before people had really discovered how beautiful it was again, and, and there weren't very many tourists. And the government um, put someone at our disposal who was sort of a guide who would take us around. And I had thought my father would take us to the places where he had grown up and the places where the family had lived and he would open up. And he did 
nothing of the sort. First of all, we arrive there and it's as if he had erased the city from his mind. So we arrived and we were looking at a map and he had no idea where anything was. And it's just weird because I, <laughs> I have no sense of direction. So I am always, always getting lost. And I seem to know my way around Prague better than he did. And I, I knew that he had spent at least 20 something years there. So obviously he hadn't been back in decades, but still you don't forget really some no. place that you lived in for 20 years, but he had just blanked it. And he just outright refused to take me anywhere. So we went and did, you know, we went around the beautiful square and we went to the beautiful bridge and we walked by the banks of the river. And, you know, we did all the things that a tourist would do. And it wasn't until the very last day where I said, please, you know, can we, you know, can we go? Can you show me something where you lived, a place, you know, somewhere where you went to school, something? Can you share something with me? And he finally said, fine, we're going to get in a taxi just before, you know, we had a plane in the afternoon. He said, we're going to, we're going to go. I'm going to sh take you to this place where the family lived. And we took a taxi to the suburbs, uh, in the suburbs, not super, you know, about 15 minutes away from the center. Okay. And he took me to this very pretty, you know, nondescript 19th century building in the industrial area of Prague. And he pointed to the first floor and he said, this is where the family lived. And that was it. So I said, okay, so tell me a little bit more about the family. And he said, well, it was my, you know, my parents and my brother and I. And we lived here. And I said, you know, were you, were you happy here? And he said, yes, but we were happier in the country house. And I said, and where's the country house? Can we go there? And he said, no, no, we don't have time. Um, he said, we just had this because my father worked a lot and this was close to the factory. And I said, well, can we go to the factory? And he said, no, it's, it's far away. And actually, it wasn't at all. I now know the factory was literally, I mean, a stone's throw. It was a one, not even a minute walk from where we were. But he said, no, we can't go. And then it was, um, we got in a taxi back because we had a, a, you know, a plane to catch. And then all of a sudden, he became very agitated. And he asked the driver to stop the car. And he, it's, it, you know, he got out of the car without saying a word and started walking. And we were, as far as I could tell, in the middle of a sort of disused, ugly, area it was it seemed quite abandoned it was there was there was a rail I mean there was a building and some railway tracks and there was fencing around it and he walked towards the fence and you know I, I was just following him saying you know what, what why are we here and I realized I walked up to him and I realized that the fence that he was holding on to the fence his hands were just holding on to the wire diamonds and that the whole fence was shaking and he was, he was shaking it with the force of his sobs. He was crying. And all he could get out was, this is where we said goodbye. Mm. Um, so that was, <laughs> that was our trip to Prague. And I, you know, I, I tried to ask him, who, who did you say goodbye to? But he was so horribly upset that I just, I, I, I just couldn't get anything out of him. I mean, it was, you know, it was more of, of, of trying to calm him down because I was, I, I was worried for him. So you went with him to Prague. You kind of got a sense that there was something more than a happy childhood at, at some point. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, I know your dad passed away, I believe in 2001. Yeah, that's right. Um, so 
tell me now you find you have done your your Nancy Drew mm-hmm. now you're able to really you're going to really look into it and what you find is really a story of survival he was a young jewish man who managed to outwit the nazis and survive the holocaust can you now tell me how did you find this information what because you you were determined to find out more about your father and his family i was so you know, I think there was a there were a couple of well, there were a lot of clues as I was growing up that there was this mystery that I needed to piece together. So there was the trip to Prague that we just spoke about, but there, and there was the ID card. And I think actually the moment that I found that ID card when I was nine brought to the fore all these other moments that made no sense. So there were no pictures of my grandparents, for example. My father had these horrible nightmares where he would scream and wake up the whole household in the middle of the night. And he was often covered in sweat and really visibly upset. So I knew, I knew something had happened and I knew that, you know, I also knew after every time I asked questions, you know, he would start to shake, he would start to sob or he would just change the subject completely. Um, and, and he knew, I think, <laughs> well, he, he definitely knew that I had all these answers. And my father wasn't someone who, shared his feelings very openly at all. So the way we bonded, and we were very close, but you know, it's not like I would go and, and discuss, I don't know, who my latest crush in high school was with him. Um, and he never asked any personal questions whatsoever. So the way we bonded is we solved puzzles together, or we solved mysteries together. Um, okay. When he died in 2001, September 2001, and it was a pretty, it was a very strange time for me because I was pregnant, with my oldest son and um and it was september um and i had the last time i got my birthday was september 6th and he had called me on september 6th to wish me a happy birthday and um he he was very very ill he had a series of strokes and i had gone down to venezuela to see him in in june thinking actually that he was wasn't going to make it because he had had a stroke in june but he had rallied so um i spoke to him on september um the six, we had a lovely conversation. And then on September the 8th, I got a phone call saying that he had just had another stroke um, and that he wasn't going to make it. And I was about to give birth to my son and I couldn't go down there. And I was told actually there was no point because he had no, um, he, 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 his brain showed no, no evidence of activity. So I was in London and they, um, they turned off the machine that was keeping my father alive and, and, and he died on September 9th. And I had my son a few weeks after and I couldn't actually go and see him right away. So once my son was a little older and I could travel, I went back down to Venezuela and I was ready to spend a couple of weeks sorting out through all the papers because my father, in addition to collecting watches, also collected, he was quite meticulous. So he collected every little piece, every little scrap of paper, whether it was a receipt or a note that someone had sent him or a letter or a note that he had written about someone. He had all these drawerfuls of, you know, files on, on, on things, on people. It was quite incredible. He had hundreds of, of drawers filled with documents. And I got to Caracas um, for the funeral. And 
we we had that and we had a lovely service under under his favorite tree in the garden and then i went to his office and i started opening these drawers and they were all empty and I couldn't figure out what had happened. Oh, really? He was so meticulous about keeping everything. And I, you know, I, I had literally thought, okay, I'm going to be away from home for two weeks sorting all this out. And then, it, you know, there was just nothing to sort out. And what he had left me was, was a box. And it was that same box that I had found as a child detective. Oh, wow. 20 some years 20, before. Okay. It was, that, it was the same box. And I opened it and there was that ID card. And in addition to that ID card, the box was just crammed with papers. And it was crammed with papers from his life during World War II, from his life specifically in Berlin from 1943 to 1945. And it allowed me to piece together this incredible story. So you have to imagine this. It's, it's 1943 and my father is living in Prague. He is 22. And what I didn't know as I was growing up is that he was a Jew. And at that time in 1943, his parents and and most of his family had been sent to concentration camps. And him and his brother, who were kept outside in, in Prague, had sorted out a system of sneaking in contraband into the camps. So my father was 22 at the time, his brother was 25, and he was married to this wonderful woman called Stenka, who was not Jewish and who could get um, food and had access to money, of course, because the family by then had no access to any money um, because everything had been taken from them. But Stenka sourced things like hair dye and, and, you know, and supplies and currency and food and matches and things that you could possibly use in the camp. And, and she got it to them, didn't she? She did. Well, I mean, she, they organized, first they organized a system of courier. The, actually, the first, the first thing she did, which is incredible because it's incredible. It's just, un, I mean, completely unusual. And, and you have to be so crazy and brave to do is that Stenka, when they first, they deported my grandmother first, and she was deported in May 1942. And for months, the family had no idea where my grandmother was. And it wasn't until August 1942 that they discovered that my grandmother had been deported to the concentration camp of Terezin, which is just about 60 miles, uh, six, yes, maybe a, a, six, about 60 kilometers, so about 30-some um, miles outside of Prague. And Stenka, who was just <laughs> crazy and brave and, and beautiful inside and out, said, I'm going to go and see her. I'm going to make sure she's okay. And she snuck into the camp. So she pretended to be one of the inmates. She sewed a yellow star on her coat. She found out by talking to the resistance how to do it. And she snuck into the concentration camp of Terezin and went to see my grandmother. This I pieced together because I traced Stenka's daughter and Stenka wrote about it. But also one of the marvelous things that I have discovered. So I've been researching this story and solving the mystery of my father, well, pretty much all my life, but really full time for the past 10 years. And um, one of the boxes that I found actually, um, which it wasn't my father's box, but my uncle's box, had dozens of letters from my grandparents from the concentration camp. So the contraband was snuck in, these letters came out, and the letters were addressed to my father and Stenka and my, my, my uncle. And the letters basically said, do whatever you have to do, but do not come here. Avoid being transported. And didn't that 
really push your father to uh, when he got his deportation notice. That's to, right. He, he went into high. He went. He went into hiding. So he got his deportation notice in March, 1943, and he decided that there was just no way he was going to get on a transport to that place. So he, which is already pretty counterintuitive, right? Because yes. you're being sent to your parents. <laughs> and I mean, I know you're 22, so you're maybe not really, that's not really where you want to go and hang out. But, um, but still, um, so he was, he went into hiding and he was hidden by this, again, not Jewish, very courageous, wonderful man uh, who was the manager of the paint factory that my family um, had a small paint factory on the outskirts of Prague. And this man who was the manager said, I'm going to hide you. And the factory was still working. So it was a working factory. It was providing paints, and which were crucial, I guess, for the uh, war effort for a little bit. And this man just took a huge risk, built a fake wall, hid my father behind the fake wall. So there were about 50 employees going in and out of this factory every day. And my father stayed in this tiny little cubicle, which had a little window. Um, that he so he could get in and out through the outside window um, in the garden, and and he stayed there for two months. And the um, Mr. Novak, he's called, and again I've traced his daughters, and they've all confirmed the story. Mr. Novak would sneak would ensure that they had they that he, you know, that my father had food and that everything was you know so that he arranged so that he could live there. But everybody was very worried because the second he absconded from a transport, he was, of course, immediately placed in the Gestapo wanted list. So the Gestapo were looking for him in Prague, and the obvious place for them to look would be his family home, um, his friends' houses, sure. and obviously the paint factory. So if he stayed there, he'd be he, they, they would find him, and that would mean certain death. Certain death for him and certain death probably for Mr. Novak. Sure. So he couldn't stay there. So what do you do if you're 22 and they're looking for you in Prague and you're a bit of a prankster and you're a bit crazy? <laughs> okay, you know, what did he do? So there's a saying in Czech that says the darkest shadow is just beneath a candle. And at some stage in, um, and, and, and I guess what, what is crucial about that is that it sort of, it basically says that if you're going to go and hide anywhere, you go and hide in the center of it all. You don't hide in the outskirts where the light is going to, going to give you up. Mm -hmm. You go and you hide in the center, just underneath the candle where the shadow is at its darkest and no one finds you there. So by luck, my father's best friend um, from chemistry school had been sent to work. So he was also not Jewish. He was sent to work um, like many forced laborers from around the Reich to um, he was sent to Berlin and he was working in a paint factory. And my father, who had no interest whatsoever in paint, he wanted to be a poet when he was growing up, uh, a poet and a prankster really, decided, um, well, you know, he, his best friend came to visit him one night when he was in his hidey hole and said to him jokingly, I think with a couple of, you know, certainly shots of slivovitz or whatever alcohol access <laughs> <laughs> to inside him. That oh Hans, you know we're so overworked in Berlin. If only you could come and help me. And that's when my father remembered the Czech saying. And again, I've traced Danik's son, so um, who confirmed all this story. And and my father decided that what they were going to do was that he was going to go and hide in the belly of the beast. Hide in plain sight. 
that's it. He was going to not hide at all. He was just going to go to Berlin, pretend he wasn't Jewish, pretend he wasn't wanted by the Gestapo, <laughs> pretend his parents weren't in concentration camps. And that's exactly what he did. So he took the midnight train in May 1943, May the 3rd, and armed with Stenick's, that was his best friend's passport, and an ID in a different name, because he couldn't have an ID in the same name as the passport, because he was going to try to get a job at the paint factory right. that Stenick was working with. So with a vial of cyanide, just in case he was found out, he crossed the border and went to Berlin, and against all odds, managed to get a job at the paint factory. And stayed there for two years, eventually started passing off information to the Dutch resistance in the hope that it would make its way to the Allies and, and help somehow. And, and that's how he managed to survive. And in that box that he left me was, were all these papers, which were all his documents, because being a meticulous man that he was, he kept all of them. So that was, I guess that's, that, that's really the, you know, well, that, was, that was the mystery that he couldn't tell me about. And that he left me, it was almost a, as if it was a puzzle because he did leave me some writings about his time in Berlin, but a lot of it required a lot of piecing together. So it's why it's taken me 10 years really to, well, to make sense of it all. Didn't you also recently go back and retrace his steps? I did. And I... How, do, how was that? So some parts of it, uh, some parts of retracing the steps was, was really wonderful and, and, and life-affirming. A lot of it was difficult because one of the things I did is, well, I mean, the, the, be the beautiful part <laughs> first. So going back, I went back to that building that I had gone with him in 1990, and that actually turned out to be the, the, the apartment where the family lived, which was very close to the paint factory where he was hidden. And walking around that part of Prague was really wonderful, and I could imagine him there, and I could imagine having read all these um, very intimate letters from uh, my grandparents to their children, I could picture them all. And, um, and one of the things that I've, another box that I found was a box um, of letters from my family in the thirties that had been sent to one of my, um, one of my great uncles had moved to California. And so uh, his grandson had all these letters that he sent to me. So I could really, I could, I could see them there and they were so happy as a family and they were so, you know, normal and so relatable. So that was, it was wonderful to see that. And it was wonderful to go to the paint factory and um, see where my father, it still stands today, which is astonishing. Um, and it's still, it's now, a, well, they use the space as a nightclub slash disco for concerts. Okay. <laughs> little weird, but, um, but the building's still exactly as it was. And um, one of the people I traced during my research was the daughter of Mr. Novak, the paint manager that helped that, my father. That hid your father. And that was just a beautiful moment because she's an older lady now. She's in her 90s. And she remembers the fights between her father and her mother because her mother, understandably, was really worried that you know her husband was taking a huge risk by helping a Jew and endangering the whole family. But... It was really beautiful to meet her. And there was one moment where I was there and actually my children who were sort of, you know, slightly grumpy teenagers came along with me. And, um, and we were all really, really moved. And at some stage, you know, we all realized that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this woman's father. 
And I said that to her and I grabbed her hands and I said, thank you. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your father. And she just turned around and said, stop saying thank you. I have to apologize that us as a country didn't all behave like my father did. That we didn't all do the right thing and that we let your family down. So that was just beautiful. And then going to their country house, which is still again standing together today. And the father, the person who owns it is the grandson of the, uh, uh, of the original owners that bought it from my father in 1947. Um, he, that, that was just beautiful. And it's a, it's, I could just, I could imagine all this family that I had never, <laughs> never heard about until very recently, just living a very, very, you know, full and wonderful and happy life there. So though that was wonderful. I, I went to the train station where I went with my father, and I now know that that's where he said goodbye to his father. Mm-hmm. And, and that was difficult. And, and the other thing that was actually really quite difficult was that I decided, and I did this separately from going to the, so I, I visited Terezin, the camp where my grandparents were. And that, thankfully, my family came along with me. And I say thankfully because it, 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 there were moments where it just, were, were just very difficult. And my kids, despite being grumpy teenagers, are also incredibly sensitive and, and wonderful and loving. And they all took turns as we were walking. So we walked around all day. We were there for about seven hours. And they all took turns. I don't think there was you know one minute where one of them was not just next to me holding my hand as I was going through the archives or looking at the buildings or as we were just wandering around the camp. So that was really wonderful. But then I decided to go back again and I decided that I had to go and take the train like my father had done from Prague to Berlin. And I did it in May, (laughs) sort of by chance really. And I didn't, obviously, luckily there was no midnight train because I would have been too wimpy to take it. Um, so I took it at midday, and it now it used to take almost eight hours, and it now only takes four and a half. But the journey was really harrowing. So I retraced. I mean, the train tracks are exactly the same as they were in 1943. You do exactly the same route. You just do it a little faster. And I realized that my father, I mean, I just retraced every step of his journey, and I realized that he had literally left Prague and within 10 minutes come come just so close to the country house where he had been so happy and you could actually you could actually see the, the roof and the and the first floor the the second floor of the house from the train tracks of his grandparents house and and then it just goes literally about again a couple of miles south of Terezin where his grandparents were um, and then I got to Berlin and I did it. My father left me a sort of retrospective diary, a little re- recounting of his time in Berlin. And I was, I took those papers with me and I got to Berlin and I, you know, and I know, I know Berlin is wonderful. Actually, I had never been, and it's a vibrant and wonderful and inclusive place. And it's, it has nothing to do with 1943, obviously. Yes. But yet, I got there and I felt so sick to my stomach. I got to this huge train station and I thought, I, I, I just, I have to turn around. I can't stay here. Um, but I did. I stayed there and, and then I retraced his steps there. And, and, and that was a little more difficult because I think his life in Berlin was insanely difficult. So I, harrowing. yeah, I, I, there, you know, it, 
just in the same way that I, I mean, even when I went to the concentration camp, because I have these letters of my grandparents while they were there, and, and again, they described a lot of darkness, but you realize that when people are plunged into this darkness, we all find ways of finding beauty and joy. And I think actually when you survive things successfully, that's why you survive them, because, because you focus on the light and you focus on finding joy and love and beauty rather than drowning in this darkness. Well, one of the other things, because we're getting close to um, time here, but one of the things that I wanted to mention is you actually have a ring that your grandfather made in the concentration camp. I do. So my, um, my, my grandfather was a very grumpy character, and he was an engineer and not an artist. He was interned in the concentration camp of Terezin, and where he obviously had absolutely nothing. And um, there was a, this wonderfully brave daughter-in-law of his called Stenka. And Stenka took huge risks for the family and accessed Terezin not only in 1943 to visit my grandmother, but also in 1944. And the couriers were failing. And she um, decided it was absolutely crucial that she take hair dye to my grandfather so that he would appear younger than his years and would be deemed fit for work. Because if you weren't fit for work, then the Nazis disposed of you. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want that. So Stenka once more snuck into the concentration camp of Terezin. Stenka decided that she had to go in herself and take the hair dye to my grandfather. So she took a huge risk in sneaking in and found my grandfather and brought him his hair dye. And I think more importantly than the hair dye actually brought him love and brought him hope. And he was so grateful for this that he stole a piece of copper pipe. So there wasn't very much that you could steal in the camp. And he fashioned a ring out of this copper pipe. And it's quite coarse. And he fashioned it with a nail and a hammer and he embossed her initials, which were ZN, on it. And he ensured that one of the couriers that took the letters out of the camps took the ring to her. And one of the things that I found in, in my boxes in these years of the of research was this ring. And initially, I, I couldn't figure it out because you, you, when you find it and you see it, it obviously doesn't look... It doesn't look, it's not made of gold, it's not made of silver, it's not a precious, fine <laughs> ring. So it, it was a very curious thing, and it, it wasn't until I traced Stenka's daughter that I realized the story behind the ring, and, and indeed the beauty of the ring. So, you know, at times like, well, like now, right, where life is making very little sense with this lockdown and, and the coronavirus, I, I like to wear it because it gives me perspective and it actually reminds me that it is so important to find the beauty and the joy and the love in, in, in everything. And that even in the darkest moments, there is always that little bit of light and, and, and you, can always find, you can always find hope and love. So it, it gives me perspective and it just reminds me of the importance of looking for that beauty in, in everything really. Ariana, on that note, I thank you. Um, 
for anyone who has not read this book. It is a memoir. It's a detective story. It's a thriller. It's something that um, unless you read it, you, you can't even imagine what her father went through, what, what you did in, in the research. And the story is one that everyone really should, uh, should read. So what are you going to do next? Well, I'm going to solve another mystery and um, <laughs> hopefully a little bit. I'm going to try to make it set in, 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 in different times, hopefully happier times maybe. But I'm definitely going to solve another mystery and I'm going to write about it because, you know, I always, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a detective and I wanted to be a writer. Well, and enjoy doing both. So, Ariana, if anyone wants more information, I believe you have a website. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, absolutely. So, it's my name. It's www.ariananeumann.com. That's www.ariananeumann.com. Well, I wish you all the best. Again, thank you so much. You have been wonderful. Oh, thank you, Sylvia. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. On our next podcast, I'll be talking to another extraordinary, inspiring woman who has made her mark on the world. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and, of course, our website, sylviaandme.com. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to keep up with the latest episodes. Review, rate, and take us with you wherever you are. I want to hear from you. If you know of an extraordinary, inspiring woman, please contact me at sylvia at lifeofprey.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay safe. This has been a Life of Prey production.